Uh, give you all a little bit of picture. We've been doing campus ministry at Stanford for a year. Before that, uh, we did campus ministry at the University of South Carolina. People at South Carolina are very insecure about the fact that they're USC, and they were always telling me that they're the real USC. And the fact that they had to say that over and over again reveals that they kind of feel insecure about it, uh, if you have to defend it. But um, we got called to ministry years and years ago, and uh, this kind of shed some light on our call and lets you get to know us a little bit better. One of the instrumental moments in our call was um, she and I were interns for RUF at the University of Tennessee. So from Alabama, worked at the University of Tennessee, worked at the University of South Carolina. God called us to Stanford because God's regular pattern of ministering to the world is to use the foolishness of the world to shame the wise, and I think that's why he called a guy from Alabama to Stanford. But um, when I was at Tennessee... Uh, there was a year in which my wife and I were the interns and the campus minister was leaving and there was not going to be a campus minister to run the ministry there. And they didn't have somebody to fill in for that year. And I met with the local presbytery and I didn't know what they were doing. Uh, Two guys in the presbytery asked me to go play golf with them one day. Didn't know what was going on. We stepped onto the first tee box of the first hole. I'm not a golfer. It was a terrible outing for me, but golfing always is. Um... And this is what happened. On the first tee box, we stood there, and John Stone and Joey Stewart were standing there, and they said, Britton, we got something we need to ask of you. Didn't know what they were talking about, and they said, the University of Tennessee, RUF, uh, doesn't have a campus minister next year. You're 23 years old, you're an intern, you're not seminary trained, you're not a teaching elder, you're not a pastor, but we were wondering if you and your wife, who's also an intern, We'll stick around for a year and just hold the ministry together until we can get a pastor there. And I was kind of caught off guard and kind of, you know, flattered, ego, kind of getting big at that point, because they were asking me to fill in for a pastor for a year. And then Joey and John, and they were, they were not being funny. They didn't see it with a smile on their face. Uh, they didn't say it with a smile on their face or anything. They said, no, we want to be honest with you. We don't think you're qualified to do this job, and we have very low expectations. In fact, these are the real words they said to me with a straight face. We, don't, we know you can't grow the ministry. We'll be lucky if you can sustain the ministry. We just want you to slow down the bleeding until we can get somebody there. And then they followed that up with this comment, which is both discouraging and beautiful at the same time. And they were like, you're not qualified for this. And the only reason we're asking you is because your wife kind of is. And um, that was my call to ministry. So, y'all enjoy meeting Elizabeth. She is why I was called to ministry. I'm married into my call. Um, So, we're looking forward to getting to know y'all and and especially enjoy our children as well. What we're going to do this weekend is we're going to look at a couple of psalms. Tonight we're going to look at Psalm 22. You can start turning there. And this is the reason we're going to look at the psalms. Uh, This is something... In my years of ministry, I realized in my first couple of years that this is one of the most neglected resources in Scripture uh, because the Psalms help us with this phenomenon, and, and I think the way the person who put it most succinctly and beautifully was a uh, former boxer, former super heavyweight champion Mike Tyson when he said this, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And of course he was talking about boxing, but also I think he was speaking metaphorically about life. Everybody's got a plan. You know, when you're sitting in here, maybe sitting in church, sitting in your devotional time, there are moments in life where you can withdraw from a second from the chaos, and you can kind of think ideally about what it means to be a Christian. You can think ideally about your dreams and your hopes, and, and you can have these visions and these, these paths you want to go down. But the problem is, is life punches us in the mouth. And we have all these categories that are neat and nice and easy to talk through in these kind of sterile clinical settings when we're thinking about what it means to be a Christian. And then you've got to go to work. Or and then you've got to start parenting. Or then you've got to figure out what romance and love is. And all of a sudden, life punches you in the mouth. Right? It's easy to be a Christian in a small group Bible study. It's hard to be a Christian in high school and in college, day in, day out, in the middle of just relating to people. 
it's really hard to be a Christian in a marriage. It's really hard to be a Christian as a parent when you're trying to figure out, is my kid whining? Is that sinful? How do you discipline for whining? What if the whining's not? It's so utterly confusing. All of your dreams of the way that you're going to be this great person fulfilling kind of all these great purposes you had for yourself, they really kind of only live in your mind for a few brief moments when you can separate yourself from really what life really is, which is getting punched in the mouth a lot. And so we're going to look at the Psalms because the Psalms are beautiful, because the Psalms sing us through the chaos of life. They are songs. They are God's corporate songbook. He actually wrote poems, songs, and prayers for us to sing. And this is the interesting thing about the genres of the Psalms. Most of them are actually laments. When God wrote a hymn book for his people, the genre that he he gives the most songs to is actually laments. He actually says, you know, he actually gives us a hymn book and says, hey, most of my songs that I want you to sing that are going to be helpful for you getting through life are going to be songs about being sad and songs about how difficult things are. And that's good news. Think about this mere fact. God wrote a songbook and said, hey, you know, you can sing you're sad. You can sing you're confused. You can sing that you're mired in guilt. You can sing that you're addicted. You can sing that you don't understand where I am and you're not sure if I'm working. God wrote a prayer for us to pray through and sing through that emotion, among others. So what we're going to do is we're going to look through a couple of psalms this week, and, and, and it really helps us pull Christianity from this kind of, and maybe our idea of what our Christian faith and our Christian walk should be, from this ivory tower, it's all clean and easy when I'm talking theology on my couch, um, and bringing it down into gritty reality. Critics of Christian culture have rightly seen, maybe at times, in some of Christian music, this kind of saccharine sentimentalism. Uh, We kind of sometimes have this ill-advised tendency to pretend that life is pretty and to basically pretend that if you're a good person, then stuff will probably go pretty well for you. That's what we secretly hope. And a lot of times that's what people pick up from Christians. Hey, their basic, their fundamental posture is, listen, you put forth a reasonable effort to be a decent person, and bad things probably won't happen. That's what we want to believe, that's what we hope to believe, and it's not true. Because life punches us in the mouth. It's our doing, it's other people's doing, we're all part of the fact that life gets really, really messy. Once you step out of your prayer, once you step out of your small group, once you step out of your devotional, once you step out of a church service, life gets messy. I hope that in the Psalms we see like that, that I can catch God off guard. So we're going to look at Psalm 22 tonight. You might recognize some of the language from it. I'll read from it, and we'll talk. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. God says you should pray this to me. Keep in mind, this is his word. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me, they mock me. They make their mouths at me, and they wag their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. This is mockery. Let him rescue him, for he delights him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening lion, a roaring lion. And I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All of the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingship belongs to the, God, to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we especially thank you for these psalms. And as we enter into them, dear God, we need you to teach us from your word. We need you to accompany your word, and we need you to press through and into our hearts the truths that heal us, the reality of a covenant-keeping God who goes to great lengths to save his people, to redeem his people, to glorify his people. And I pray we'd begin to find rest even in the midst of confusion. In your name we pray. Amen. So this text, it begins with the hardest question in life. Whether or not you're a Christian, wherever you are on the religious spectrum, Christian, skeptic, maybe somewhere totally different. It starts with the hardest question that everybody asks at some point in life. Maybe you ask it of God, maybe you ask it of the world, maybe you ask it of someone else or something else. But that hard question is why? That's the hard question. After 9-11, what, what is everybody consumed with? Why? Why? After Aurora, the shooting in Aurora, Colorado, the Batman movie, why? Why do things like that happen? You know, we, we can zoom out and we can ask it about the big things that are going on in life, but then we can also zoom into our own lives on a smaller level, in a microscope. Why is this situation in my life? God, why, why is this an area that I have to struggle in? Why is this an experience I have within my family, within my own life? And, and God gives us some big picture answers at times. God's working all things to praise of his glory. But that's not a sufficient answer for us, Right? We want something more. We want details. No, God, why, why is this in my life here and now? And God's not afraid of tough questions. And what I hope happens this weekend is I hope that we see that Christianity is not sentimental. It's not just happy and fun in the times that we actually feel happy and fun and nothing difficult is going on. I hope that we see that Christianity is as robust and powerful and as searching as we should expect from a God. Why am I lonely? You've been in this church, you've been in this community, you're hoping to find love. God, why, why do other people have friends? Why do other people have families? Why do other people have lovers? And why am I lonely? You can ask God that question. Why is this happening to me in my job? Why is this happening to me at school? I've put in the effort. I've tried to do well. Or maybe I can't summon the effort. Why? Why is this my lot in life? Why can't I shake these feelings? Why, why am I the person struggling with depression? Why is addiction in my life? Why, like not everybody has to do that. Why is it mine? Why do my children make these choices? Why was I the person abused? Why is that my story? Why do I have to carry that story? Other people don't have to carry that story. Why am I sick? All of these questions, and the hardest one among all of those questions, again, is why is it me and not somebody else? 
I see other people, and they don't have this lot, and they don't understand how difficult it is. God, why did you put this thing in my life? I can't bear it. And I want an explanation. And we, we can deal with that with a couple of strategies, and I hope that we can break down those strategies a little bit this weekend. We can deny it. We can just lie about it. We can just say, I'm okay. I'm over it. You know, we can push it down. We're carrying, some of us are carrying some really dark things. A lot of people in this room, almost everybody, all of us are prone to think we're the only one. And we, what we want to do is we want to push it down and kind of repeat this mantra to ourselves, I'm over this, this doesn't control me. And when the darkness and the distress and the trouble stays hidden, and when you carry it by yourself, that's in fact when it actually has the most power over you. It is dying for you. The hard things in your life are dying for you to keep them hidden. So we can deny it. We can just try our best to pretend it's not there. Or we can just self-medicate by distraction. Right? By work, by accomplishment, by distance. My favorite way to self-medicate is the iPad. Right? The iPad is glorious. Because I can pull that up and I can read ESPN.com. And when I'm reading ESPN.com, all the hard things in the life disappear. Right? My biggest distraction is really Alabama football, but I don't know if y'all would fully understand that. That is the religion of choice in Alabama. And right now, it's a good time to be an Alabama fan. If you're going to find a false god, at least find a false god that wins a lot of national championships, and that's (laughs) what I have. Um, What I want us to do tonight is I want us to put it out in the open and put it on the table, our wise, and stop running from them because we're afraid to ask them because we don't want those things to come up. And see that God has a prayer. And he says, you should pray to me. Why? He wrote a prayer for you to pray back to him. Why? He's prepared for this. And actually, he wants to walk you through it. And that's, that's the first point tonight, really, is this. You're allowed to cry out. Why? You're allowed to do that. It's not disrespectful. If anybody has a lot of good reasons, we don't know the specific reasons that David wrote the psalm, but, we should, but it's easy to come up with a lot of them. Why am I being hunted down by my best friend's dad? His best friend's dad tried to kill him. Hunted him for months, if not years. Why did you let my son rape my daughter? That's David's story. He gets to ask that question. Why, God, did you give me a son that hates me and wants to kill me? God, why, when I saw that woman next door, why was I the person, I was the king? Why am I the person that was so easily seduced? I'm supposed to be the king. We're allowed to ask why. Those Those are some of many reasons David was probably asking why. And look at the way he asked. Look at the way God allows you to ask why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say, God, why is this in my life? He makes God the active agent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not just let this happening, but why have you abandoned me? It's almost like you have a hand in what's going on in my life. Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Listen to the prayer. I mean, this is... The shock of this psalm is the fact that God says, pray this to me. You can say, God, why do you not hear my prayers? It feels like you're so distant. Do you even hear me? I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, and I find no rest. You can say, God, why don't you answer me? He's okay with that. He actually, again, is guiding you through asking that. Verse 6, I'm a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. He's saying, God, this feels foolish. I feel like an idiot in this. All who see me, they mock me. The people are looking at him. Maybe you feel like looking at you and thinking, This person's a Christian. They're claiming to believe in this God that makes everything better and look at their lot in life. 
That's ridiculous. And so he gets words of mockery. He's saying, they make, they, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads, saying, they're making fun of him. He trusts in the Lord. He's saying, God, this looks foolish for me to suffer in this way and to claim that I believe in a God that's going to fulfill these promises to make all things new again, to establish a king who will reign over all of creation forever. He's going to wipe away every tear. Do you see how foolish it looks for me to suffer through this and claim that I believe in that kind of God? God recognizes that. He recognizes that that's an instinct we have. My circumstances are going to kill me. Verses 12 through 13, you, kind of, you have this imagery, many bulls encompass me, the strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. He's talking about his enemies. Feels like they're going to overcome him. In some ways, it's not inappropriate for us to think about the circumstances that crowd around us, that feel stronger than us, that seem imposing, maybe impossible. 14 and 15, he gives us this imagery, I am poured out like water, my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast, my strength is dried up, my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. He's giving us word pictures for the purpose of describing feelings. Again, this is poetry, these are songs, this is how they teach. And this is what distress can feel like. It can physically affect you. It can physically affect you. Doesn't that communicate or evoke what it feels like to kind of be in the depths of not knowing why and being overwhelmed? Like your life is just drying up. You don't even feel alive anymore. Life is, feels, like, feels like you're withdrawing from just the experience of living. Everything just gets muted. You don't even know how to feel. You can't even imagine what normalcy or recovery would look like anymore. Here's the point, the first point. It's okay to have an honest conversation with God. We don't have to draw that out implicitly from the text. It's explicit in the fact that he gave us a prayer to pray. God, why? I don't feel you, I don't see you, I don't think you hear me, this feels ridiculous, and it's hard, and I feel like I'm dying. He says, you need to pray that prayer. It's okay to have an honest conversation with God, it's not disrespectful. Secondly, and there's freedom, and there's even joy to be had in this eventually, we'll get there. It's okay to be sad and confused. It does not mean you're a bad Christian or don't understand the gospel if you are sad and confused. In fact, very well may be that that's a sign of maturity in the life of a Christian. It's that you get sad because the world's not supposed to be this way. Jesus was sad. He was sad at what he saw. He cried when bad things happened. He didn't like his friends getting hurt. And he didn't like people being sick. It all made him sad. It very well may be that sadness is not a mark of immaturity, like, oh, you just don't trust God, you should be happy all the time. Sadness is actually probably a mark of maturity in the Christian life. But we don't want to admit we're sad because being sad feels like failure. Like you did something wrong, you're not as strong as anybody else, or you don't trust God, something like that. You are supposed to be competent, and competent people aren't sad. It feels like you may bring other people down, you don't want to be that person. Maybe it feels like you're the only one. And there's that shame in being the only one that's needy that kind of carries this sadness. It feels like if you give voice to the sadness, then it's going to overwhelm you. Maybe. God expects you to be sad. He was sad when he walked this earth. He wept about it in the conditions he found it in. If we don't have a healthy doctrine of Christian sadness, this is what happens. And I see it happen in campus ministry all the time. If we don't have a theology of sadness, what happens is this is what happens with my college students. They get excited about Jesus for a while. With, for legitimate reasons. They went to a great retreat or a conference. Maybe they just had a good season of things going well in their life. And they start to think being happy all the time is what it means to be spiritually mature. And then what happens is life punches them in the mouth. And because they've said spiritual maturity is being happy all the time, 
then when they get sad, you know what they think? They think, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I don't trust God. And what God's saying here is like, no, no, no. The world's broken. I'm sad about it. If you get what I'm talking about in Scripture and in the Bible, you should be sad. There's joy mixed with sadness. It's a paradox and it's beautiful. And we're going to talk about that as the weekend progresses. I don't want to say there's not happiness and joy in the gospel. But if there's no sadness, then I'm not sure we understand much of the Bible. It is okay. It's even mature to be sad. But even in light of that, we still want our explanation. Right? That still doesn't answer the question why. For him to give us the freedom and the good news that it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be sad about your situation. It's okay. It's even good. It's even mature. But we still want our explanation. God, why? And first I want to see, there's a rub to that, the way he answers it. God never does things the way we want him to. He doesn't give us the answer that we're searching for. Because what we love is we love a good coming from bad situation. We love fairy tale endings. We want somebody to show us that the hard things in life, they have this necessary and logical and good end. And only then, with that explanation, knowing, well, God put this in my life because weeks later, months later, years later, he was going to do this. And if we have that explanation, that's going to make life bearable. That's what we want. God, just tell me now why. Tell me why you put illness in my life. Tell me why my family's like this. Tell me why school's going this way. Tell me why work's going this way. Tell me why psychologically things inside of me are going this way. And if you tell me why, and you tell me the happy ending that I'm going to find a couple of months from now, or a year from now, or two years from now, then I'll be able to do it. We want him to give us that explanation. He or she broke up with you. Well, the reason why is because God has a better one for you. I don't know. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. That's the reality. But we want to say, oh, they, I was crazy about them, but they broke up with me. And the reason why, the explanation is because there's someone else better. God never says that. I lost my job. I failed class. Well, the reason why is because God wants to get you in this other field where you're really going to be happy. I don't know. God never makes that promise. And it's dangerous to start offering, saying things like, that because you're speaking on behalf of God when he doesn't say those kinds of things. We want God to give us the explanation and because we believe if we have the explanation that erases the sorrow and that erases the sadness. If I have the reason why, then that'll erase the sorrow and I can get through this life. This is what Susan Cohen wrote in Time Magazine seven years after her daughter died in Pan Am Flight 103 in 1988. She wrote seven years later in Time Magazine about this specific phenomenon that if somebody will just tell us the good that's right around the corner from this bad I have to go through, then everything will be better. This is what she says seven years after experiencing the death of her daughter. Good coming out of evil is always a popular angle coming out of a story. If nothing else Victims can be ennobled by tragedy, finding a new meaning in life, growing and changing for the better. Cheer up for America. No matter how horrible things seem, the future is bright, and tragedies are merely glitches on the road to happiness. She's being sarcastic. This is what she says next. On December 21st, 1988, I found out what a lie that is. My only child is dead, and for me, seven years later, grief is constant and permanent. Yes, the passage of time has helped a little bit. I get up every day, and I go places, and I meet people, and I live my diminished life. And grief is always here. And I'm in pain all the time. She's saying, don't try and tell me, hey, here's the good that's coming out of your daughter's death. Here's how God's going to use it. Here's how, you know, years later, it's going to be a good thing. Because that will never change the sorrow of losing a child. Uh, uh, one of my college roommates, Finley, when they were delivering their first baby, the doctor accidentally cut off the oxygen supply to her brain. Permanently brain damaged her. Finley will never have a conversation with his daughter. She will wear diapers and be fed by her parents her entire life. To say to Finley... Well, God did this in your life so that you can minister to other people with handicapped children. To try to comfort them, that even may be true. But to try to comfort them with that kind of thin comfort, 
is naive and actually enraging for him. It's infuriating to say, so you you think God wants me to spoon-feed my child and never have a conversation with her for an entire life? And the reason why is so I can love some other people? You think that's going to make it better? It doesn't make it better. It might even be true. It doesn't make it better. We think an explanation is going to wash away the sorrow. And some of our explanations might even be true. But they don't wipe away the sorrow. And that's really naive to think that they will. And within Scripture, here's the other frustrating thing about the way God does things, but I, I hope that in the end we see that He does it differently and He does it better. God makes a point several times that there are hidden things you're never going to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the hidden things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed that He's chosen to make known to us, they do belong to us. We think there were enough time and resources and wisdom and counselors that we have the ability and the right to to demand an explanation and that we can work it out and we can figure out the explanation for why this thing, this situation, this relationship, whatever it is, is in our life. Paul says, he calls God's ways, they're inscrutable and unsearchable, which means no matter how hard you search, you can't figure out what God doesn't want you to figure out. It's impossible. Even in Palo Alto, even at Stanford, Right? It's impossible. Job is a terrifying book because Job's utterly terrifying because here's a man that's faithful. And he experiences suffering probably more intense than any of us will ever experience. And he finally breaks down and questions God and says why. This is utterly terrifying. Utterly terrifying how God responds Job breaks down in verse 32, and he finally, or, sorry, 30, uh, in chapter 31, and he says, if I had done, and he gives this litany, if I had done this wrong thing, if I had done this wrong thing, if I had done, he says, here are all these things I could have done that were wrong, and I never did them, so why? I could understand if I had been this type of person. That's what he says. So God, I, but I wasn't. So why did this happen? Why did everything fall apart for me? Listen to how God responds to him. He says, Who is this who darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I'll question you. And you make it known to me. This is what he says. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined the measurements of the earth? Surely you know. This is how God responds to Job. Have you commanded the morning? By the way, do you start the morning every day? Actually, get the morning going. Do you cause the dawn to know its place? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Do you know where I store the snow? This is what he says to Job. Have you seen where I store hail? I keep it somewhere. That I've reserved for certain times. Uh, Do you send forth lightning? I do. Um, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? I keep track of all of them. Do you give the horse his might and his strength and his speed? Or were you the person that designed the main? Actually, that was my idea. This is what God says to Job. This is a sampling of chapters of this kind of stuff. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? That's what he says to Job. And Job begins to get it after a couple of chapters, and he responds... Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. The point is this. And this is the single most offensive theological fact that nobody thinks is the single most offensive theological fact, but in fact is. God is God and we're not. And he has plans and he has reasons And he's under no obligation to share them with us. But he has shared much with us. And we're to be greatly concerned with it. But there's a lot that's just his business and not ours. And he actively teaches us that. And that's frustrating. It is. It's frustrating because this is our dilemma. We know that God is good... But he hasn't given us the explanation we want. And so this is the question. This is the real tension... How can it be 
for my good that God not give me an explanation? That's the question. That's the rub. How can it be for my good? How can it be for your good for God not to give you the explanation? For God to not let us in on his eternal counsel among the Trinity. There's not an explanation given to David here. There's no, David, here's the good that's going to come out of this situation. David, your, your son wants to kill you, but let me show you how I'm going to bring something good out of that. He doesn't offer him that. How can it be good for us to not get the explanation? Here's the reality. God always does things better than we could have imagined. He gives us the answer we need. We don't actually don't need an explanation, and the explanations don't make it better. They don't. He gives us what we need. The first thing that starts happening in the psalm in verses 3 through 5, he, there's this yet, right? But you're holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. This is what's happening right here. David's doing something. It's one of the most important Christian disciplines. He's remembering. He's remembering. And he's teaching us in these situations, we have to remember. We have to remember the past faithfulness of God. What he's reflecting on here is the historical events of when God's delivered Israel. The defining historical work that God did for an Israelite at this point in time is they would always remember the Exodus when they were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them out of Egypt. And that's what David's reflecting on here. He's saying, I'm in the midst of this confusion and I've got to step out for a second and I've got to remember. I've got to remember your past faithfulness. And so he thinks on it on a large scale, right? God's faithfulness to his covenant people. In the midst of this confusion, we've got to read the stories of God being faithful over and over and over again. So we can know, I don't understand, but I know God's faithful. But he also doesn't just remember big scale God's faithfulness, but even small scale. Verses 9 through 11, he reflects about God's faithfulness in his own life personally, and he remembers that. You are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. So he remembers God's past faithfulness in big areas, historically, the exodus, the different battles God's carried them through, the promised land. But he also remembers God's moments at work in his life specifically. And that's part of what God gives us to deal with this too, is he's saying, hey, remember the times I have been at work in your life. Live on those. We need to live on those sometimes in the midst of confusion. God, David's remembering in the midst of all this distress and confusion, God's faithfulness. And I suspect that in the midst of our distress, that's something that we find that naturally we don't do very often. But here's the thing. If you're a parent, you actually coach this up in your kids all the time. When our children get splinters, especially when my children were so small that they weren't talking when they were one or two years old, and we couldn't communicate with them very well, and they had splinters, you know what happens with splinters? I have to inflict pain on my child in order to help them, and I cannot explain it to them. Can't explain it to them. They don't get why I'm inflicting severe pain on them. Even if I tried to, I couldn't explain it to them. And I'm inflicting, I mean, it feels like death to them. Getting those splinters out sometimes. It gets so deep, and man, it's terrifying as a parent. And they're terrified. This is what we say to them, and every parent does this. I love you. I'm doing this for your good. You say it in whatever your way. Sweetheart, I'm trying to help you. I'm doing this because I love you. Now you don't understand. I'm saying, remember who I am. Elizabeth's saying, remember who I am. I'm your mom. I'm your dad. I'm taking care of you. Trust me. We're saying, remember. Remember how we've always related to you. We've always fed you. We've given you a house. We love on you. We snuggle with you. Remember all of that. And though I can't explain to you, I have to inflict so much pain in your life. The only thing that it can get you through this, even though it, and, and actually it still will be painful, is look at me and remember. I'm your dad, and remember what all that dadness entails. That's what God's saying here. Remember I'm your dad. Remember how I've always taken care of you and taken care of my people. 
But he actually doesn't tell us just to remember. He gives us more. He gives us more. In Psalm, uh, sorry, in verses 19 through 21, something begins to happen. Maybe you felt the turn. The, the latter half of the psalm starts turning into this praise, this kind of effusive praise. You have the pleas of God coming near, God carrying us, God be in this, God please be here, save me from this. And then verse 22, David starts to break out into praise. And this is how you may feel, and this is how I think we're prone to feel. If you're really reading this and you're really entering into the pain and the confusion of it, you should be asking, how do we go from that kind of frustration into praise so quickly? Like, how is that? It may even feel offensive. So you want me to pray for this confusion and then all of a sudden start praising God and being really excited about who he is? How do we get there? How do we make that transition in the psalm? And this is it. Several months ago, an elderly woman who was basically Elizabeth's grandmother, they weren't related, but she was that woman that, that carried that role of grandmother in Elizabeth's life, passed away after painful bout cancer. What was more comforting for Elizabeth at that time? An explanation or an embrace? An explanation doesn't help. She needed my embrace. This past year in school, Mary Walton really, uh, one of my seven years, really struggled with her teacher. They were just at odds within their personalities. They didn't get along, and, and, and it really affected Mary Walton's just kind of her joy and her happiness, and it was hard to see that in my child. And she even asked, why? Why do me my teacher not get along? Why, why am I becoming like this around my teacher? And you know what? I couldn't answer that question for her. Even if I kind of understood relational dynamics a little bit, I couldn't explain it to a seven-year-old. You know what she needed? She needed to be tickled by her dad. That's what she needed. We need to laugh and play together. That's what she needed. An explanation was not going to help her. She just needed her dad to be with her. She just needed her mom to be with her. She just needed her family to be around her. That's what was going to help. An explanation is information that actually wasn't going to really change who Mary Walton was. What was going to change her was the embrace of her family, especially the embrace of her parents. What we need in distress, y'all, is not an explanation. We think that's going to make the sorrow go away, but it doesn't. We don't need an explanation. We need a person to be with us. And that's what's given in this psalm. And it's given in life by God. He doesn't give us an explanation. He gives us what we need, which is far better. He gives us a person. And the key, the missing link that really reveals the full meaning of the psalm is when you hear it quoted again. Maybe you recognize those first verses. It's quoted later in Scripture. In Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross. God hasn't revealed the whys, the explanations that we wanted, but rather what He's done is He's come to us because that's what we needed. So your question is, God, what about the loneliness in my life? And He doesn't answer that question with an explanation. What He does is He says, I came and I was lonely too. What about the betrayal in my life and the family and friendships? And he doesn't give you an answer or an explanation for that. He came and he was betrayed. What about losing friends? He doesn't explain to you why those friendships happened. He came and he wept when he lost friends. What about poverty? He came and he was poor. What about alienation? He came and he was alienated. What about, what about suffering? He came and he suffered. He doesn't answer the question. Actually, what he does is he enters into our experience, and that's what we need. And that's the only thing that can begin to give us healing. Because the explanation is just data. It's not all bad. And maybe it softens the blow a little bit. We don't need data. We need somebody to come be with us. 
And that's what he offers. Elizabeth didn't need an explanation. She needed me. Mary Walton didn't need an explanation. She needed her family. This is why Jesus is called Emmanuel. God with us. That's what we need. The God who chose to lay aside his power and his glory and suffer loneliness and suffer hunger and suffer poverty and betrayal, the loss of loved ones, to suffer mockery and to suffer death. The one who came to be with us in this mess. We don't need a God who's going to give us an explanation. We need a God who can get in the mess with us and save us from it before it kills us. God doesn't explain to my friend Finley what happened to Virginia and why it was his will. God weeps alongside of Finley. And that's where comfort's found. Not in the explanation, but in God with us. Listen to Isaiah 53. Maybe you're familiar with it. Would you ever have thought anybody would explain the deity this way? He was a deity. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. Would you have ever thought anybody would have ever have thought to describe a God that way? We don't need an explanation. It wouldn't help us much anyways. We've got to be a real realistic about life. This life, this earth, this experience, it's broken. It's jacked up. It's painful. You might lose your best friend. You might find out within six months that someone dear to you has cancer. You may lose your job. Your family may fall apart. You may find... There may, there's going to be more shootings like Aurora, Colorado. There's going to be more war and there's going to be more starvation. More children are going to get hurt. This world is cursed. And an explanation does not get rid of the curse. And what Jesus came to do is not to give us an explanation because it wouldn't help us much anyway. He didn't come simply to be empathetic either. He came and he bore the curse. He had it placed on his shoulders. He came so that he could swallow up the curse in him to absorb it, to put the cursedness of this life and this existence and this earth, to put it all to death in him. And he does it in order to make the world back the way that our hearts are screaming it always should have been. Regardless of where you are on the spiritual spectrum, whether you're a Christian or not, wherever you think you are, all of our hearts are screaming... The world wasn't supposed to be like this. And the reason we're screaming why is because we know we should have never had to scream why. And that is our heart saying, we don't need an explanation. We need it all fixed. We don't need an explanation to the answer to the question why. We need a world in which we no longer have to ask why. And that's what's described in Revelation 21. So what do we do with all of this? Take your wives to Jesus. It's okay. And he, but he gives you something far better than an explanation. He comes into the cursedness and the brokenness of the world and he absorbs it. We don't need an explanation. We need a savior. And what that leaves us right now is it leaves me with the most boring sermon application to close with ever that none of us are happy with, including me. I don't feel cool giving you this sermon application. What this means for us is we're churchgoers. How not cool is that as a sermon application? Go to church. You know? Sorry, I hope that's not a disappointment. I hope you're, maybe you're thinking for something greater. But it leaves us as churchgoers because this is what church is. Church is anticipation of the resurrection. Church is anticipation. Gathering together on the Lord's Day, on the first day of creation, the first day of new creation, Sunday is resurrection day. It's not the seventh day of the week. It's the first day of the week. All of a sudden, people started worshiping on Sunday when Jesus rose again from the dead and stopped worshiping on Saturday. And the reason why is because Sunday is Resurrection Day, when God started his work of recreating the world, of making everything new again, and it began in Jesus rising again from the dead and conquering death. And so what we do is we get together on Sunday, and we start the week 
with this fundamental truth at the center of who we are and start our week with this fundamental truth, burying it deep down in our hearts, is this. There's going to be a time when we don't have to ask why anymore. And we can't wait for it. And we get there and we get to that world and we struggle in this world trusting because over and over again all of us are getting around each other and remembering God's faithful, God's faithful, God's faithful. He's getting us there. He's getting us there. He's getting us there. Look what he did with Israel over and over again. But all of that finds a climax and look what he did with Jesus. Man, the best thing you can do with your questions why is get together with God's people on Sunday morning and start your week remembering God's making it all new again. He started at the cross. And it's going. We need each other. I have to be reminded of God's goodness by you. You have to be reminded of God's goodness by me and by each other. We need to be reminded of Jesus' grace by each other. We need to laugh together. We need to play a lot tomorrow. We need to sweat and have fun and have games. Man, that is good. We need to be honest with each other. We need to carry burdens together. This is a lonely place, and, and all of you... In, in, in specific social situations, some of you feel connected, some of you feel disconnected with people here. And yeah, it does take time for fellowship and friendship to form, but we need to begin down that path of remembering the resurrection weekly with God's people and remembering the resurrection in the context of not just worshiping together, but within, in friendship with each other so that we can share our whys with each other and we can weep over our whys with each other. And as we weep over our why questions with each other, we can remind each other and remember together exactly what the last words of Psalm 22 are. He's done it. He's done it. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to deal with confusion in this life. and It feels so small and insignificant to think that in 40 minutes we could give some simple answers to dealing with it. It, it. That doesn't do away with the pain, dear God, but I pray that you would press deeply into our hearts the reality that you are faithful and that though we may not get explanations for the cursedness of this life, we know that in you we have a God that bears the cursedness of this life. And I pray that in the midst of our sadness, that would also bring us joy. In your name we pray. Amen.